1 Samuel 17. Okay, what we're about to do is hear from the Holy Spirit of God. So, let me just encourage everybody to pay attention. This is a long chapter, 58 verses. But I feel uh, that, that what we're about to do is perhaps more important than anything else. Uh, we're going to do this morning. We're going to hear directly from God. And so kids, if you're sitting here today, I know this might be a familiar story. Maybe you want to, uh, I see some people have fidget toys and maybe things that you're coloring, uh, notes that you're writing. Just listen for just a moment. Listen to what God's word has to say in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 1. 1 Samuel 17, 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. And there came from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had, a bronze, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. 
Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved and forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'ariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Open up your truth to us. Father, we pray as well for our brothers who are ministering elsewhere this morning, for Trent as he opens the word at Rock Creek Baptist, and for Sammy as he leads worship in Alito. Uh, I ask that you just fill these brothers with your spirit and anoint them to minister well and that you would bring souls to yourself through their ministry, and that you would do the same thing here through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Part of raising children in the modern world, I think, is navigating a stage of life in which the child remains obsessively fixated on watching and re-watching the same show or movie over and over again. Have you found that to be true in your home. Uh, for some of you, it was Frozen. I remember a few years ago, that was kind of the repeated movie. You've seen that movie a million times because your kid wanted to watch it every day. Uh, my wife tells me that when she was a kid, it was Mary Poppins. They would watch that movie whenever they could. I don't know if I've ever actually sat through Mary Poppins all the way through. In, in our household, it was The Lion King. We watched it almost every day when I was a kid. Of course, as parents, we've had to walk this path too. Only when our kids were young, uh, we already had streaming services like Netflix. And so each of our kids had their favorites on demand whenever uh, 
wanted to on, on any device that was connected to Netflix. They could watch those shows, and so they had their favorites as well. And for one member of our household, the obsession wasn't a movie or a TV show so much as it was an entire film genre. Uh, if Netflix came out with a new documentary describing the sinister and dangerous ways of a dangerous animal, like a shark or a gorilla, our son Austin would be glued to it. And I, I think you're still a little bit interested in this, but it, you were obsessed when you were really little. Uh, and uh, the more violent, the more humongous, the better bonus points if it was a prehistoric animal. And one particular documentary checked all the boxes for him, that, and we must have watched this a hundred times. It was a documentary about a 50-foot-long prehistoric serpent whose vertebrae were discovered in a Colombian mine in 2009. Uh, I asked him about this the other day. I said, do you remember this show? And what, what's the name of the, the snake? Titanoboa. That's what it's called. How many of you have seen this documentary? It's, it's worth it. But anyway, they, they document the discovery and then recreate the, the, you know, the life of this animal uh, with CGI animations. And uh, here, here's this 50-foot-long snake, and he's attacking just a measly 15-foot-long crocodile and destroying it and eating, swallowing it whole. But that was captivating for us in our household for a season because there's something about the idea of a giant reptile, a serpent, that captivates the attention and encapsulates the terrors of so many people. And this has been true down through the ages. How many of our great stories uh, down through the ages have had to do with the slaying of a dragon? Well, this morning, as we've seen in our text, we're, we're going to see that God's anointed king, David, excuse me, David, is in a manner of speaking sent to slay the giant dragon and to rescue his people from the jaws of this wicked beast. And I, I think you'll see what I mean momentarily. We know based on the prior chapter that David is God's choice for king. He's been anointed as the king. He's the king after God's own heart. But to this point, it's a heart that only God has been able to observe. God's seen it, but nobody else has seen it. And in, in chapter 17, uh, that vertical transaction between God and his chosen king becomes horizontal. We see not only David's relationship to the Lord and the Lord's opinion of David, but we see the way that David interacts with God's people and with God's enemies. In other words, the focus of this chapter is on this question. Who is this man that God has already named king? What kind of a king is he going to be? What's the meaning of his kingship? It's sort of like we've seen David's kingship through this one lens uh, last week, and now we're going to look at it through a completely different lens this week. What kind of a king is he going to be? In order to answer that question, I want to break apart this chapter into three sections. First of all, the characters from verses 1 through 27. Secondly, the conflict from verses 28 through 47. And then thirdly, the climax from verses 48 through 58. So let's look together in the first place at the characters. Uh, there are, of course, two main characters in this account. And we're introduced in the first place to the antagonist, this Philistine giant named Goliath. Now, most of the time in the Bible, when you come across a new person, even if it's an important person, 
it's uh, typically the biblical writers do not describe this individual in, in vividly physical terms. Like we don't know what Abraham or Moses looked like. That's why when I was in Sunday school as a kid and the Sunday school teacher wanted to display on the flannel graph Moses or Abraham or uh, Noah, she always used the same flannel graph character for all those guys. You know, just a guy with a beard, looks about maybe 60 years old, and a robe, and we don't know what they look like because it's just not talked about. It's not important to the story. But amazingly, the writer takes up all of verses 4 through 7 to paint a picture of this man, Goliath. So imagine in your mind's eye his physical appearance. Obviously, there's a lot of guesswork that goes into translating uh, cubits and shekels to our modern-day measurements. But most scholars agree that we're talking about a man who is about nine and a half feet tall. A man whose head would touch the net of a typical basketball hoop. This guy is massive. His scale armor, which the ESV calls a coat of mail, uh, weighs about 125 pounds or more. So imagine a barbell and then two 45-pound plates on that barbell and then just like strap that to your body and walk around with that. That would, for me, for some of you, like I could do that. I could not do that. That would tire me out. His spear must have been at least two inches in diameter, and the head of the spear weighed 15 pounds. And he has a scimitar strapped to his back. He's got a bronze helmet. He's wearing these bronze greaves. They look like shin guards on his legs. He's huge. Why is the author taking so much time to describe the physical appearance of Goliath? Well, one of the reasons is because that's what people cared about here in, in the time of 1 Samuel. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we found? Remember Saul? What was his chief characteristic? He's head and shoulders above everybody else. Remember Eliab just from the pre previous chapter where, where God has to remind even Samuel, don't look at the height of his stature. And now here's a guy who's a true giant, nearly 10 feet tall. Now, modern people like to try to figure these things out from a medical scientific perspective. And so, for example, in a popular book by Malcolm Gladwell called David and Goliath, Gladwell goes to great lengths to surmise that uh, the giant is actually suffering from an acute medical condition called acromegaly. Uh, Robert Wadlow is a famous giant who grew to 8 foot 11 inches before he died. He had this condition, and if you've ever seen pictures of Robert Wadlow, you know he's a gentle giant. He looks very welcoming and friendly, and, uh, but it's a, it's a very difficult and debilitating disease. Uh, he had problems with his eyesight. He never stopped growing, and he died at an early age because he was a giant. But, uh, friends, that's not how Goliath is presented in this passage. He isn't a gentle giant suffering because of his size. He is a mocker. He's a defiler. And in order to understand that, we have to kind of get past his physical appearance and move to his family legacy. Where does it say Goliath is from? Look, look in the beginning of the chapter. Where's Goliath from? What's the city? Gath, right? You say, well, I've never been to Gath. Where's that? Okay, if you know your Bible, you know that that's important because the Bible actually talks a lot about giants. Uh, when the children of Israel first came into the promised land, you remember this from the first five books of the Bible? They come to the edge of the promised land and they send spies into the land and the spies come back and they, 10 of the spies, they say, we cannot go in there. Why can't we go in there? Because there's giants in the land. 
The sons of Anak are there. The Anakim are there. These Anakim were known to be giants. Actually, one of their relatives, a man named Og, king of Bashan, just sounds like a villain, doesn't he? Did battle against the children of Israel during the days of Moses. And we're told in that account in the, in the time of Moses that Og, king of Bashan, he slept on an iron bed that was actually like 12 feet long. So here's a bed that's twice the length of a normal twin bed. He was a huge man. But there were these other Anakim there, and for that reason, the spies were too afraid to go into the promised land. And so because they were afraid, God forced them to wander around the desert for 40 years because they weren't willing to go into the land and kill the giants. But what was so scary about these giants? We said, well, they're giants. No, it's actually more than that, because if you really pay attention to the details, uh, according to Numbers 13, verse 33, for example, the sons of Anak were actually descended from the Nephilim, the fallen ones, first mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. So these are the offspring of a grotesque union between evil spiritual beings and human women. Moses tells us that the Nephilim were on the earth in the days of the great flood and afterward. Later we learn that their descendants, the sons of Anak, are living in and around the regions of Canaan and that these guys are so terrifying that they're not even willing to go fight them. Finally, though, under the leadership of Joshua, uh, after that 40-year wandering in the wilderness, what happens? Joshua takes uh, the Israelites in, they cross the Jordan River, they attack the Canaanites, they drive them out, and Joshua's friend Caleb actually fights and kills the most powerful of the sons of Anak, and he takes over their land and he renames it Hebron. And then in Joshua chapter 11, verse 22, we're told that there are just a few giants left, just a few of the sons of Anak, and they were driven back from the land of Israel into a couple of the cities in the coastal plain, just small towns. And do you know what one of those cities was called? What do you think? Gath. So in other words, here's Goliath. He's not suffering from a medical condition, all right? He's the physical descendant of a very ancient and a very terrifying evil. I know that that might assault your imagination this morning, but we have to take Scripture for what it says. This is a man who wields an evil power, whose physically imposing size is just the tip of the iceberg. This guy is evil. Now, I think our writer actually wants us to perceive an even deeper evil at play. Think with me not only about Goliath's physical appearance and his family heritage, but his theological significance. Here's a guy whose family line began with the work of demons, who six times in this chapter is said to mock or defy the living God, who is a grotesque caricature of the priorities of evil men who value power over trust in God. He, he represents the first great ordeal in the life of David. He's going to fall flat on his face and lose his head just like somebody else earlier in 1 Samuel. Who was it that fell on their face earlier on? It was the it was the Philistine false god, Dagon, in 1 Samuel chapter 5. He's going to be destroyed by a divinely anointed king, just like Nahash the Ammonite, whose name, by the way, means snake, fell at the hand of King Saul in, verse, in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And he's even dressed up like a slimy reptile. He's wearing this scale armor. In the ESV, it says coat of mail, but you don't want to think in your mind's eye of chain mail like you'd see in medieval times. This is actually scale armor. So it's like a leather shirt with bronze scales overlapping. It looks exactly like the scales of a snake. In other words, I think what 
our author means for us to see in Goliath is a gigantified avatar of the old serpent, the sneaky, subtle snake that sought to destroy the image of God in the Garden of Eden, the snake that God promised long ago would be crushed by a coming king. Do you see what I'm saying? Goliath is here, and he's, he's calling out, he's defying the armies of the living God, but he represents all this stuff behind him that the coming king is meant to destroy. Now, most of you are at least a little bit familiar with this story, and maybe you've had the thought, you know, I've got giants in my life, uh, but don't miss the depth of the evil that, that's described here. Goliath's not a metaphor for an important exam or a schoolyard bully or a well-funded political opponent or a greedy corporation or last year's championship team in an inspiring sports movie. No, he's an embodiment of an ancient and supernatural evil called Satan. What I mean is that evil is very, very much personal, enduring, strategic, bent on destroying the image of God and people. Charlie even mentioned that earlier today. Uh, Satan wants to destroy humans because they bear God's image. It's not misunderstood or merely the product of an unhealthy environment or upbringing, there is a whole host of, of heinous spiritual soldiers deployed throughout the world, confusing the minds of men, mocking the divine, striking fear, dousing faith, erecting great dungeons in which to imprison the minds and the affections of human beings. You know, nowadays it's so popular to, to sort of psychologize evil and explain it away, isn't it? Uh, to show how the great villains have been mistreated and misunderstood. They had a tough childhood. They were hurt by somebody that they should have been able to trust, and that's why they've gone on to murder millions of people, you know? We do this even, excuse me, with our children's stories nowadays. The Wicked Witch of the West is not as wicked as you thought. Uh, Maleficent isn't as Maleficent as you imagined. What, what is the, I know these are just children's stories. They're, they're meant to entertain, but what is the message of these stories? Evil people are really just hurt and misunderstood and unloved, and therefore they deserve our sympathy. But friends, there is a great, personal, ancient, satanic evil in the world. And by the way, that gives us hope, friends. Because if evil is really just me misunderstanding somebody else, then I've got to somehow come to terms with it. But if, like the Bible teaches, evil is something that's truly heinous, and God says, I'm going to send the king to destroy it, then I know that I can have hope in the king that God is going to send. He's going to send a warrior to stamp it out. So that's Goliath, but then in verses 12 and following, we're introduced to the second main character, a young man named David. Again, we already know that God has anointed him to be king, and the Spirit of God rests on him in power, but the way that he's introduced shows us that the author wants us to kind of look Stop looking at this horizontally, or vertically, you know, between God and David, and start kind of looking horizontally. Uh, rather than vertically. David is cast almost as a new Joseph, a younger brother sent by his father to check on the older brothers who despise him because of his favored position. He's a shepherd of sheep. Whoever wrote 1 Samuel observed a pattern and saw David as part of that pattern. God is working through an unlikely, unwanted covenant son, even though he is despised, even though he's looked down upon by his family, and he's going to shepherd the covenant people of God. A big shift is coming, and this person is going to be at the center of it. So David walks the 10 or 15 miles from, from Bethlehem to 
the valley of Elah, and he sees everybody cowering behind the rocks and the bushes, and he hears the great Philistine mocking the armies of God, and he hears how afraid everybody is, and, and not only the soldiers, but even the king is afraid. Do you remember what the people demanded from God when they got King Saul? They said, Samuel, give us a king so that he can go out before us and fight our battles for us. Is that what Saul is doing? Even Saul is cowering. And then the very first words that David speaks in the entire Bible appear in verse 26. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy, that he should mock the armies of the living God? So what kind of a king is David going to be? David is going to be an unlikely king, yes, an underestimated king, but a king who is nevertheless driven by a burning, violent zeal for the glory of God. So what God saw initially, and nobody else could see in the heart of David, we're actually getting to see right now. He, we're seeing the heart of God, this zeal for the glory of God. Jesus later would say that out of the, hearth, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, and that's true in David's case. His disbelief that's, that Saul and his armies would allow a mocker to defile the name of the Holy One for 40 days is evidence of his own heart of worship. Now, Remember, Samuel, God had told Samuel, I'm going to send you a king. I'm going to provide for myself a king after my own heart. So we're seeing David's heart, and, and that means, folks, we're seeing God's heart. What are we seeing in David's heart? We're seeing a zeal for the glory of the Lord. This is what drives David because this is what drives the Lord. God is the only being in the universe who is zealous, rightly, who is eager to see his own name glorified because that is the greatest thing in the universe, and God God wants human beings, creatures, to recognize his glory and to worship him and have fellowship with him because of his wonderful greatness. What could be greater, a greater object of affection and admiration and zealous love than the beautiful God, the one who invented the mind that painted the Mona Lisa, the genius who designed the Parthenon, the one who makes the earth erupt with lava and cools the tongue of a weeks-old fawn at the side of a creek. What could be better than that? What could be more wonderful than this guy? God's heart is zealous for his own glory because God is glorious. And David's heart is zealous for him as well. So who is this king? Who is this young man? He is a king who burns with zeal for the glory of the Father. So that's our two main characters. You've got Goliath on the one hand, the, the giant serpent, and David, the anointed king, whose heart beats in rhythm with God's himself. But let's turn now from the characters to the conflict. The conflict. The conflict actually begins in verse 28. Uh, David meets the spirit of Goliath long before he meets the person of Goliath. Uh, the first layer of conflict we might call Goliath's contempt versus David's selflessness. Uh, Eliab, David's older brother, he meets in verse 28. Uh, he's been there for David's anointing. He knew who David was. He was the anointed one of God. And yet, what, is what does Eliab have for his brother David? Nothing but contempt. He says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. In other words, it's not just the giant who has this contempt for the Lord. Even Eliab, even one of God's people, one of David's own brothers has contempt for the Lord. 
David's unfazed because, of course, that's not why he came to the battle. He's acting on obedience from his father. He told him to receive this token of well-being from his brothers. What kind of king will David be? He's going to be a selfless king. He's willing to put himself in harm's way in order to rescue the people of God. He walks toward death rather than running away. Uh, So that's that kind of first layer of conflict, the contempt of Goliath versus David's selflessness. The second layer of conflict we might call uh, Goliath's confidence versus David's faith. Goliath's confidence versus David's faith. Again, David hasn't even met the giant yet. He goes from Eliab to meeting with King Saul, and there, once again, he meets the spirit of the giant. The words of David come back to the king. He sends for the young man. They have this conversation in the royal tent back at headquarters. Saul is frustrated because his confidence is in the same place as Goliath's. Where's where's Saul's confidence? Size? Armor? Swords and shields? Saul's been reading the war manuals of his neighbors rather than submersing his mind in the mighty acts of God recorded in Scripture. And so David actually, this young boy, has to take King Saul to school in verse 34. It's like he has to talk down to Saul. Saul, I'm a shepherd. Let me just explain it in ways in a way you can understand. I'm a shepherd. And you know what happens when I'm watching my father's sheep? Uh, sometimes a bear comes. Sometimes it's a lion. Maybe it's a coyote, whatever it is. And when that happens, I've got to be the shepherd. I've got to go after that predator, and I've got to snatch the little lamb away from that predator's mouth. And if he attacks me, I've got to grab him by the hair and beat him to death. What is he doing? He's basically describing to the king the job of a king. A real king has to face death in order to rescue his people from the jaws of the enemy. He has to get close enough to evil to stare it in the face and destroy it. For David, it's simple. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. It's no different. See, Goliath's confidence is in the armor, but David's faith is in the Lord. So he tries out the armor, but our author wants us to know that when David goes out to meet Goliath, he's not wearing any armor. He's not trusting in that armor. And that brings us to the third layer of conflict. We see Goliath's contempt for the Lord, Goliath's confidence in the strength of man, and then the third layer of conflict, Goliath's crime versus David's zeal. Beginning in in verse 41, we read one of the most epic scenes in the entire Bible. There's Goliath, he's roaring like a lion, he's growling like a bear, he's barking like a dog, he's spitting out these venomous taunts like a viper. And he's at the bottom of the valley, the ranks of the Philistines are over here to the north, and the ranks of the Israelite soldiers are all hiding behind the rocks and the cedar bushes to the south. And then this small boy walks over the crest of the hill. He's got curly hair, smooth red cheeks, no beard yet, he's too young. He's got a little messenger bag bouncing against his hip, one lanky arm holding his staff, the other gripping a leather sling. And Goliath watches this. At first, he's, he's probably thinking, you know, did somebody drop something over the hill? What's, what's going on? They sent their little page after. But then the boy draws closer. The ground levels out a little. Now he's running. Now he's closer to Goliath than he is to the ranks of the Israelite soldiers. And Goliath walks forward, and he begins to mock. 
am I a dog? David doesn't even need to answer because the answer is yes. He just keeps running toward the giant lion-jawed, bear-clawed, dog-pawed, snake-scaled defiler. Goliath's crime is the reproach that he casts upon the Lord and on his armies. Put this crime in context, folks. Remember what God had told Abraham in the book of Genesis. He said, Abraham, whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless. But whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. Remember that Pharaoh had to learn that the hard way in the book of Exodus? Og, king of Bashan, who we mentioned before, had to learn this the hard way. Nahash the Ammonite, the snake king who wanted to gouge out everybody's eyes, had to learn this the hard way. And now Goliath is about to see that God means business when he says, whoever curses you, I will curse. And so David stops and he cries out in the hearing of both armies, you come to me with sword and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. So that everyone will know that there is a God in Israel, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And Goliath steps forward, David breaks into a run, and we move from the characters and the conflict to the third section of our text, the climax. David puts his hand into the bag, hanging at his side, and he chooses a stone. I mean, think of a smooth river rock, about two or three inches in diameter. And he puts it in the small leather pouch of that sling and he swings it around and he sends it hurtling like a four-seam fastball toward the skull-shaped catcher's mitt of the giant's forehead. And the whole host hears that hollow thud and sees the stone sink deep in between his eyes. Goliath stops, he stares blankly into space, staggers, and falls face first in the dust as good as dead. David closes the gap between them. Well, the, the shield bearer, I don't know what happened to that guy. <laughs> He's just standing there like, what happened? But David grabs the sword and he chops right through the tree trunk of his neck, pulls the disfigured head dripping from the ground and raises it triumphantly to the newly emboldened armies of I am. And the Philistine armies, they're over here, they're like, what just happened? They take off running. And the armies of God, newly emboldened, chase them and spill their blood upon the ground until they reach the gates of the giant's own hometown, miles away. And when it's all over, David takes the gear, uh, Goliath's gear, and he presents his head to the king. And King Saul asks the key question. What is it? Who? is this guy by the way uh, it seems to me that the writer of first samuel is not presenting these accounts in chronological order strictly uh, saul i think didn't know who he, who he was uh, but for thematic reasons our author is kind of rearranging things here so that we see who david is as the king but Saul asked the key question. I want, to put you, I want to put the same question to you a different way. Where do you see yourself in this story? That's one of the wonderful features of a story. We can enter into it and we can kind of walk through that biblical time uh, with Moses or Abraham or whoever it is. Where do I fit into the story? 
It's common, I think, for professing Christians to treat the Bible like a library filled with illustrative material that we can then bring into our own life and say, you know what, I've got this story already. What part of the Bible can I bring in to help me tell my story? In our therapeutic age, this is very tempting. Our religious life isn't about a relationship with God. It's about feeling better and coming to terms with ourselves navigating our families and our difficulties and our depression and our grief and our lack of resources. And so, for example, uh, Christ's death and resurrection. It's not about reconciling human beings to God and defeating Satan and all those things that the Bible says it's about. No, it's more like this. His death and resurrection, it's, it's like that time when I was playing sports and I tore my ACL and it seemed like my high school career was over. And I was looking at the situation in a negative light, and I saw suffering and disappointment just like Jesus' cross. But then somebody reminded me that Christ got back on his feet on the third day. And that sort of inspired me to dig deep. And, and, and by the start of the next season, I had done all this rehab, and I was back ready for action. And I had more triple-doubles that season than I had ever had before. Folks, if that sounds kind of gross to you, like kind of a misuse of the greatest story ever told, if it feels like you cheapened it, let me just say that it's equally inappropriate to take any part of God's word and refashion it in our image like that. I, I can't think of a story where we're more ready to do this than the story of David and Goliath. We make it all about overcoming the obstacles that stand in the way of us meeting our goals that we've already set for us. In fact, not to throw salt on the wound, but Jerry Jones did this very thing this week, didn't he? Comparing a multi-billion dollar football team to David, he said, I have seen it just hopeless and walk out there and David slays the giant. I've seen it done, end quote. That's not what this story is for, guys. Goliath isn't a metaphor for the big challenges that you face in life. In life. He is an embodiment of the evil seed of the serpent. He's evil incarnate. He's this humongous human representative of the murderous schemes of Satan. He wants to enslave the people that God is in covenant relationship with. He wants to destroy the Lord's anointed. He wants to see all of Adam's race fall short of their created purpose to rule the world in righteousness. He is the devil's champion. And David isn't you. He's not a stand-in for your insecurity or a manifestation of how all the people misunderstand you and don't see how much potential you have. Who is David? David is the Lord's anointed. David is the spirit-filled ruler of the people of God. He is despised by his brothers, but he is God's king. He is the shepherd who puts himself in harm's way in order to snatch God's lambs out of the mouth of the predator. He is the warrior who breaks the teeth of the ravenous grizzly bear. He is the champion who destroys the wild and devouring wolf. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the giant serpent. He is the general who feeds the corpses of God's enemies to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound like you? Or does that sound like somebody else you know? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus of Nazareth. He is despised and rejected of men, says
says Isaiah the prophet about Jesus. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I lay down my life for the sheep. King David is just here getting us ready for a greater king, a king who will destroy the works of the devil, who will finally crush him, a king who isn't the one that you'd expect, who isn't the beef-necked bruiser that you might have hoped for, but who nevertheless will one day ride into battle on a white horse, his garment dipped in the blood of the winepress of the wrath of God, a fiery sword blazing from his mouth, a rod of iron in his hand, who will invite the birds of the air to gather and gorge themselves on the bodies of the rebels. Yes, The New Testament says this, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great. God's king is a king who will capture the beast and throw him alive into the lake that burns forever. He is our dragon slayer. He is our giant killer. He is the one who snatches the saints from the the jaws of the lion and from the claws of the bear. So where are you in this story? You and I are there. But as sure as there are bigger, more sinister giants than the project at work or your fitness goals, there is a greater, more glorious king than you or me. So I'm not David, neither are you. Where are we in this story? Well, we, we might be in one of two places in this story. And it's, friends, listen, whatever you're doing right now, whatever your mind is thinking about, stop and pay attention. Because it is so important that you know where you are in this story. We're in one of two places. We're either the Israelite soldiers who needed a champion, or were these Philistine soldiers fleeing from the righteous king. You might not want to hear this, but the Jesus of the Bible, while he is not the macho motivational speaker, flush with cash and surrounded by admirers. Neither is he the wimpy pushover who just lets everybody walk all over him. He is the king. Despised, yes, and rejected, yes, by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, yes, the sin bearer. But the day is coming when he is going to trample his enemies underfoot and all who find themselves arrayed behind Goliath, contemptuous, mocking Goliath, will be chased down and slaughtered in the way, and he will feed their flesh to the birds of the air. And folks, every wicked soul will be reaped from the face of the earth and cast like a bundle of straw into the burning furnace of the everlasting wrath of Almighty God. God's word teaches this. You say, that doesn't sound very nice. No, it's not. That's what I'm trying to say. You say, well, I like to think of Jesus as a nice man with a nice soft beard and a wonderful sense of humor who just accepts me for who I am. Listen, God is love, God is light, and he offers a free gift of salvation to any who come and, and just put, their hand, put their, themselves in the hands of Jesus Christ. He paid for sin on the cross. Like, you don't have to do anything to earn his love. But this Jesus who just acts like he's A-OK with everyone doing their thing does not exist. It doesn't matter how you like to think of him. What matters is what he's actually like. 
And, and I fear lest someone here today may be saying no to King Jesus for the last time. Who has convinced themselves that the idea of Jesus as a warrior mowing down his enemies is old-fashioned, distasteful. Folks, he's the king. And the king is going to bear the sword in an unmatched, violent power against every devil and every demon and against all those who refuse him, folks. And, and time is running out. And so this morning, I want to challenge you, I want to plead with you to know where you are and to get in line behind God's champion, to leave this army over here, the contempt and the mocking and the defiling of the name of God and say, that was me. That's where I was born and raised. That's who I've been. I've been mocking God with the way I've lived my life. I've said, no, I want to be the king. And you say, I don't want to be that anymore. I want to get in line behind this champion. I want to follow this king. I want to say he's on the throne of my life. You say, no, I'm neutral in this battle. No, not in this battle. You're not. Try to go to a battle. I've never been in one. <laughs> Some of you have. You can't be neutral. You've got to pick a side. John 3.18, this again, this is in the Gospel of John, the New Testament. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. And what I'm saying to you guys is the battle is pitched. It's time to choose a side. And I'm saying come to the light. The, the, the offer is open and available no matter who you are, no matter where you were raised, no matter what your IQ is, no matter how much money you have, no matter what your last name is, no matter your skin color, it's open for you. And the, the battle's already been won. The enemy's already been crushed. And so I'm asking you to get behind your king. Would you pray with me now?